Hey there, Kindred Spirits. It's House of Dreams time here on Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my perfectly dreamy co-host, Reagan Duffy. Hi, Kindred Spirits. Okay, Reagan, it's been a minute since we checked in on what we've been reading. So tell me, what's on your nightstand? Did you read anything great while we were on podcast hiatus? Well, I jumped into the year by reading a lovely, cozy, witchy mystery called In the Company of Witches by Aura Lee Wallace. And there's already a sequel out that I'm already on the library waiting list for. I hope it becomes a series. It's a small town setting. The main character is a witch. And her two aunts and the uncle who raised her are also eccentric witches. And they solve a murder. There's a little bit of magic. And there's a little bit of family dramas and family secrets. There's a little bit of having a crow as a possible familiar. Ah! (laughs) I know. It was such a fun read. Oh, that sounds amazing, Reagan. I'm going to have to pick that one up. Yes, yes. High recommend. I also read Starling House by Alex E. Harrow. And Kelly, I am going to lend this to you. It is right on my nightstand to give you next time I see you. It is so right up your alley. Very Southern Gothic dark fantasy. You're going to Oh, yes, it. please. Oh, that sounds so good. And I love Alex E. Harrow. I'm two books behind on her. I didn't read A Spindle Splintered, which I think came out in 2022. And then I haven't read Starling House yet. So I have a little bit of catch up on her backlist. Yes, this is really good very atmospheric i had extremely vivid dark dreams while i was reading oh really (laughs) not quite nightmares but slightly unsettling okay that's a great recommendation yeah and then right now i've picked up the middle grade series the myrtle hardcastle series by elizabeth c bunce i got all three of these books in one of the local little free libraries we've got like five in our neighborhood that we pass when we're walking the dog and there was even a note from somebody recommending them and that person said that they are kind of a cross between enola holmes and ballet shoes which yeah i kind of co-sign that in terms of the vibes that i'm getting from this it's edwardian england 12 12-year-old Myrtle is obsessed with crime and forensics, and she solves mysteries with her governess and her cat. I'm only halfway through the first one, which is called Premeditated Myrtle, but I just love Myrtle so far, and these are really delightful. I cannot wait to read all of them. So how about you? How's your reading year so far? Okay, first of all, those all sound so fun. I love also that you have like little free library stewards in your neighborhood that are leaving little notes in the books. <laughs> you can always tell when, you know, someone is a book evangelist and they want everyone else to like their favorite book as much as they do. Well, so I had a pretty massive reading slump at the end of last year. Just one of those types of things where like nothing you read kind of captures your attention. And even when you know that this is like the kind of book that ordinarily you would like or like you should like it. You can't bring yourself to actually sit down and finish it. I had several of those right in a row. And for me, when I'm experiencing that, that usually is telling me that I'm in a period of like busyness that might be verging on burnout. So it's a good indicator that I need to like take some things off my plate. So that definitely made sense with it being the holidays and all of that. So at the beginning of this year, I decided to just sort of ease my way back into reading. I was like, let's make things as low stakes as possible. And I picked a ton of children's books, literally picture books. Oh, you know, like the kind that you would read with a small child or that if you're reading on your own, you can read in like just a few minutes. And I think that was a really good choice for me for some low stakes reading. It's such a different way to read because, you know, the illustrations are given 
giving you as much information as the text. And so you really have to force yourself to go super slow to absorb everything on the page instead of just like racing through the words. So of the kids' books I read, one that I especially liked and I will recommend to the kindred spirits is a book called Una by Kelly DiPucchio and illustrated by Raisa Figueroa. Una is a tenacious little mermaid whose best friend is a little otter. So cute. And the two of them are undersea treasure hunters. The illustrations are amazing. They really bring the seafloor to life. They're just teeming with interesting creatures and all these fun little items lost at sea. That sounds really beautiful. I miss picture books. I don't yeah, really buy them, of fun. course, anymore. But I do really, I do really miss them because they are a very different kind of storytelling and really beautiful and can be often very deep in their own way. Yes. Well, and this one that I'm recommending, Una, is one of those that I think that the story kind of, if you're reading between the lines, is really special and intriguing. And there's stuff about sort of the tenacity of following through on your dreams. There's also some like interesting stuff about taking care of the ocean and the planet, but it's all super subtle. It's not preachy at all or whatever. It really just reads like a sweet little story about a little girl who goes treasure hunting. But there are these kinds of other thoughts if you're, you know, maybe looking at it from a more mature perspective. So I love a kid's book that works on different levels like that. Yeah, me too. But I will say, I think I have my reading mojo back. (laughs) Yay! I know, it makes all the difference. I recently finished a book that I have had on my shelves for ages. And this is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. The author is Oliver Berkman. And this book is sort of a philosophy treatise masquerading as a productivity guide. So kind of a fun book to start off the year with. Um, Berkman's sort of central premise is to really force the reader to confront the limitations of your life, right? That's the title. 4,000 weeks, that's about 80 years. And once you do that, you come to the inevitable realization that you just aren't going to get everything done. You just aren't. (laughs) And whether that's responding to all the emails or cleaning all the things or reading all the books or completing every task assigned to you at work or doing all the charity work or saving the earth or becoming all the things that you told yourself would finally make you a real adult, it's just not going to happen in your allotted 4,000 weeks. And so in that realization, there's this kind of like peace, maybe even a sense of freedom. We are not going to get it all done. So now we are tasked with making the choice that the stuff we are doing is the stuff we really want to be doing. Whatever it is, it is challenging you to just be more intentional with how you're using your time. There's tons of thoughtful information and guides about how to decide what that looks like for you, where to pull away from perceived obligations, and where to lean into activities and commitments and connections that are actually aligned with your values. The book also encourages you to maybe sort of take a step back from this sort of grandiose plans that you might have had for your life and instead just think well what if I just have like a regular normal life what does that look like depending on the individual and their jobs and their obligations and responsibilities that could all look totally different but it was really helpful for me it's super thought-provoking and I think for many people it's going to be a great framework to help them organize their time that sounds fascinating I should read it Well, let's segue into our episode. Today, we are starting our series on Anne's House of Dreams. There is so, so much in this book in terms of themes and new characters and Anne's own emotional growth that we are going to devote at least eight episodes to it. So this is just the very beginning of our discussion. Our kindred spirit of the episode is the House of Dreams itself. 
The House of Dreams is the first home Anne gets to build for herself, where she and Gilbert will write their own story. It represents the beginning of their life together, and we learn it has a long legacy of happy occupants who have also come to the house as newlyweds. We even learn that after Anne and Gilbert leave, the next homeowners will be newlyweds as well. It's the perfect metaphor for new beginnings situated facing the sea with all its possibilities. Our quote of the episode captures the moment when Anne has left Green Gables, Avonlea, and girlhood behind for her house of dreams, four winds, and marriage. The night winds were beginning their wild dances beyond the bar, and the fishing hamlet across the harbor was gemmed with lights as Anne and Gilbert drove up the poplar lane. The door of the little house opened, and a warm glow of firelight flickered out into the dusk. Gilbert lifted Anne from the buggy and led her into the garden through the little gate, between the ruddy-tipped firs, up the trim red path to the sandstone step. Welcome home, he whispered, and hand in hand, they stepped over the threshold of their house of dreams. It is so just atmospheric and dreamy and romantic. We love this moment for Anne. Yes. For our story club today, we are going to recap this absolutely splendid book. Anne's House of Dreams is actually one of the least episodic of the Anne books. It's a little more plot forward than some of the meandering that characterizes, let's say, Anne of Windy Poplars or Anne of Avonlea. Although there's still plenty of chapters with Maud's signature stories of small town life and gossip. And as a reminder for our listeners, in the original order of publication, House of Dreams comes right after Anne of the Island. Anne of the Island was published in 1915, and it ends with Gilbert and Anne getting engaged and the discussion that he has three years of medical school to get through before they can marry. And then House of Dreams was published in 1917, and it picks up three years later. Gilbert having graduated, Anne is back at Green Gables after three years of being the principal of Summerside High and they are planning their wedding. But Maud had been pressured to write more about Anne later in her career, so she went back and wrote Anne of Windy Poplars, which was published in 1936, to fill in that three-year gap of Anne's time in Summerside. As a result, House of Dreams has a lot of very specific callbacks to Anne of Avonlea and Anne of the Island, but none at all to Windy Poplars because those characters had not been invented yet. Mostly this doesn't matter, but if you are doing a close reading like we are, you will definitely notice some of those things. And as you all might have picked up on, Maude was writing this book during World War I, which we know had a deep effect on her, and I think accounts for some of the more somber nature of House of Dreams. Yeah, I think that's right. It's also a deeply romantic and deeply nostalgic book, right? And I agree that the tone is connected to the heavy emotional impact of World War I on Maude. I really think that Maude is trying to capture this like golden moment of innocence and perfection on the island. It kind of reads like someone reminiscing about the good old days. But now on to the plot. So we start off at Green Gables. And Anne is packing away her textbooks. The geometry book is packed with a special vigor. And Anne declares to Diana that she's glad she will never have to either learn or teach geometry ever again. We check in a little with Diana, who is laughing with Anne and cuddling her two-year-old daughter called Small Anne Cordelia. Marilla is in the kitchen making blue plum preserves, glad to hear Anne's laugh echoing through the house, but also sad to think that this is the last summer that Anne will live here. Once she and Gilbert are married, she will be moving much farther away. We also find out that telephone lines have come to Avonlea. 
And it's one of those party lines, so perfect for all the town gossips. Diana even mentions that she knew the Pie Girls were listening when Anne called her and asked Diana to come over. I suspect, Reagan, that the telephone may be a bit of an anachronism here. If we're following the timeline from Anne of Green Gables, we think that Anne and Gilbert likely marry in the early 1890s, and the telephone was absolutely invented by then, and telephone lines were being laid in Canada throughout the 1880s, but like individual telephones probably wouldn't have been in homes for another 10 or 15 years, especially in like more rural areas. But you know what, really, I, I love this detail. It is hilarious to think of all the Avonlea town gossips crowded around the phone. And it turns out that the telephone becomes kind of an essential plot detail because the telephone is literally the reason that Anne and Gilbert can live in the House of Dreams, which we learn is somewhat remote from the nearby village. Gilbert is able to take calls from the people who need medical care and then go to them. Anne has asked Diana to come over because she wants to share the news that she finally knows where she and Gilbert will be living once they get married. Gilbert is going to start taking over his great uncle's medical practice in Four Winds Harbor and the village of Glen St. Mary. It's about 60 miles from Avonlea, so Diana bemoans that she and Anne will not get to see each other often once she's moved. Anne also shares that she and Gilbert have decided to have their honeymoon in Four Winds, and Gilbert is looking for a little house for them there right now. It actually makes a lot of sense that these two don't want to travel for their honeymoon. They spent the last three years apart and are so excited to get ready to build a life and a home together. Anne says, I want to spend my honeymoon at Four Winds in my own dear house of dreams. And also tells her that she won't have any bridesmaids at the wedding because all of her best friends are already married. Diana, Phil, Priscilla, and Jane. And Stella is teaching all the way across the country in Vancouver. And of course, at the time, you could only have unmarried women in your bridal party. Yeah, they would have taken bridesmaid pretty literally. <laughs> Whereas, you know, now we usually include people in our wedding parties regardless of their relationship status, which I think is an improvement. Me too. Kelly, who was in your bridal party? Oh, okay. Well, like I mentioned in our last episode, when we got married, I had just graduated from law school and moved back to California. So my bridesmaids were all friends from the various different periods of my life up to that point. I had two of my best friends from childhood, two of my best friends from college, two best friends from my year abroad, and two best friends from law school. Uh, as you can probably tell, I am a big believer that best friend is a tier of friendship and not an individual friend. <laughs> My really big bridal party was especially funny compared to my husband's much smaller group. I think he only had four groomsmen. And then during our rehearsal, actually, two of my bridesmaids decided to decamp to his side of the aisle just to make the numbers more even. It was this like sort of a spur of the moment decision, which I still really cherish as a demonstration of love and support for my husband and I as a pair, not just individuals. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very awesome. I also loved how all the women in your bridal party wore different pretty floral dresses and fun colored Converse sneakers. Right. Yep. The Converse sneakers were the through line. I enjoyed having like a big chaotic wedding party. Truly, our, our whole wedding was big and chaotic, which is pretty on brand for me. But in contrast, yours was really intimate and beautiful. I definitely love the idea of having a very small bridal party. I had my sister as my maid of honor. And then Steve's oldest niece was 11 at the time. So she was our junior bridesmaid, which is, you know, mostly just symbolic. It's not like she was right. really at the age where she could help with anything the way a bridesmaid would. And his youngest niece, who was six, was our flower girl. She was very cute and luckily went down the aisle. We were not sure whether or not she would. <laughs> 
We also had our good friend Nikki as our dog wrangler, and she walked our two dogs down the aisle and then stood up for Steve alongside his dad, who was his best man, and his nephew, who was the ring bearer. So we didn't really have a traditional wedding party. No, but it was still really lovely. And, you know, it really concentrates the attention on the couple when the wedding party is that small. And I think also it removes some of the politics around, like, who gets to be in the wedding party when it is just one or two really close friends or family members. I thought your wedding and your wedding party was just perfect. Oh, thank you. I do too. And we found other ways for people that were close to us to have roles in the wedding that sort of celebrated them for who they were and who they are in our lives without like making it kind of official bridal party-ish. Yes. Well, back to Green Gables. We get some nice little catch-ups with all of the Avonlea folks. Anne and Diana reminisce about how Anne wore her first puff sleeve dress to the Avonlea school concert, and Anne had been so angry that Gilbert kept the pink paper rose that had fallen out of her hair that night. Marilla and Mrs. Rachel reflect that the Green Gables house has never had a wedding, and they are prepping plum preserves, hooked rugs, and cotton warp quilts to gift to Anne for her new home. We also find out that Marilla sees in Gilbert the path she didn't take by being too stubborn to make up with Gilbert's father when they were young, and sort of thinks of his marrying Anne puts that mistake to rights. Gilbert returns that evening and tells Anne that he has found the perfect little home for them in Four Winds. It's right on the harbor shore and looks out to the sunset. It's an older house that apparently has a romantic story connected to it that a Captain Jim, the keeper of the lighthouse, will tell them about when they arrive. The house has a big grove of fir trees behind it, rows of Lombardy poplars along the lane, and a ring of white birches around the garden, with a little brook cutting across the garden. Anne is delighted, and it's clear that Gilbert knows exactly what she was hoping for in their home, and he chose it for her, calling her his dryad. This is one of many moments throughout the book where Maud shows us so clearly how well Gilbert knows Anne and how focused he is on her happiness. This house of dreams didn't like appear out of thin air. Gilbert found it for her and he chose a house that is a little more remote, knowing that it would be the kind of place where Anne could make their first home together. Anne and Gilbert's wedding brings in all of our favorite Avonlea folks. Miss Lavender and Paul Irving and Charlotta IV are coming. Paul is 19 years old now. Phil and Reverend Joe will be attending the wedding, and Phil brings with her a gift from Miss Patty and Miss Maria Spofford, the China dogs Gog and Magog. They had intended to leave them to Anne in their wills, but decided to give them to her as a wedding gift instead. Reagan, side note, where do I find my own Gog and Magog for my house of dreams? <laughs> Kindred spirits, if you have any ideas, let us know. Yeah, I'm on the lookout for some for you, Kelly, for your birthday. Yay! I find the right ones. <laughs> Also in attendance is Jane Andrews, now Jane Inglis, and her millionaire husband. They'll be coming. And her mother, Mrs. Harmon Andrews, is enjoying flaunting Jane's wealth in front of Anne. But Anne is nothing but happy for her sweet friend. The twins, Davy and Dora, are 15 now and capable young adults. Davy has taken to farming, so Marilla's not going to have to rent out the Green Gables fields much longer anymore. So they got their boy to take over the farm after all. It's a nice little coda to the story of Green Gables to know that even as Anne leaves for good, the farm will go on providing for the people that she loves. We also find out about a few folks who can't come to the wedding. Miss Stacy is married in California, Stella teaching in Vancouver, and Priscilla lives in Japan with her missionary husband. Aunt Jamesina is in India visiting her daughter's mission field. Anne and Gilbert plan to get married in the orchard under a blue sky at noon, despite Mrs. Harmon Andrews' disapproval. 
the evening before the wedding and heads off for a solo walk to Matthew's grave for a little moment to share her happiness with Matthew. Gilbert joins her on the walk home and they reflect on their very first walk together. These two chapters are lovely callbacks to the earlier books, reminding us of who Anne was then, how she's grown, the lives she has touched, and the lives that have been important to her. We are closing the chapter on Anne's girlhood at Green Gables and opening a new chapter of her life with Gilbert. And then it's Anne's wedding day, a beautiful sunny day in September. Anne wakes for her last morning in the room of her girlhood, a room which Dora will inherit after today. But question, where has Dora been sleeping prior to this? <laughs> okay, great question. Okay, I thought about this a little bit. So we can assume that Mrs. Lind is in the spare room. I think that might even be in the text from Anna Vavinley, although I'd have to check to be sure. And I think Davy is probably in the little room off the kitchen where Marilla originally planned to install Anne until she realized Anne was a girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. yeah. And you know what? I bet Dora has been in Matthew's old bedroom. And when oh. Dora moves into Anne's gable room, Davy will take Matthew's old bedroom. Okay. Yeah. So sort right. of taking Matthew's place as the man of the house in more ways than one. So Diana gets to Green Gables early to help Anne get ready. And Marilla and Mrs. Rachel have the house and wedding lunch all in readiness. This is a lovely scene. Anne comes down the stairs in her beautiful dress and veil, where Gilbert is waiting for her in the hall, looking at her with shining eyes. They walk together out to the orchard where Mr. Allen marries them, and Reverend Joe says a beautiful wedding prayer. Maud writes, Birds do not often sing in September, but one sang sweetly from some hidden bough while Gilbert and Anne repeated their deathless vows. Anne heard it and thrilled to it. Gilbert heard it, and wondered only that all the birds in the world had not burst into jubilant song. Paul heard it and later wrote a lyric about it, which was one of the most admired in his first volume of verse. Charlotta IV heard it and was blissfully sure that it meant good luck for her adored Miss Shirley. The birds sang until the ceremony was ended, and then it wound up with one mad little glad little trill. Anne and Gilbert leave in the evening to catch the Carmody train. The twins, Charlotta IV and Mr. Harrison, throw rice and old shoes as Paul drives them to the station. Maud writes, quote, Marilla stood at the gate and watched the carriage out of sight down the long lane with its banks of goldenrod. Anne turned at its end to wave her last goodbye. She was gone. Green Gables was her home no more. Marilla's face looked very gray and old as she turned to the house which Anne had filled for 14 years and even in her absence, with light and life. That totally made me tear up when I read it. No, me too. Oh, we love Marilla. But this is a good Marilla book. We'll see her again. And as Diana, the Echo Lodge folks, and the Allens have dinner at Green Gables to help fill the void that Anne has left for Marilla, Anne and Gilbert are met at the Glen St. Mary station by the buggy sent by Dr. David Blythe. Gilbert drives them to their new home. It's just at dusk and the harbor gleams in the last light of the sunset. Gilbert tells her that their home is two miles out from Glen St. Mary, and then it's another mile from their house to the lighthouse. There aren't many neighbors, only one house near to theirs, but Anne knows she won't be lonely with such beauty surrounding them. As they near the shore, Anne sees a very beautiful young woman driving a flock of geese on the hill nearby. When Anne and Gilbert pass, she stares at them, and Anne perceives some veiled hostility in her look. Anne is taken aback by the woman's beauty. She has heavy golden hair braided around her head, vivid blue eyes, crimson lips, and a stunning figure. 
Gilbert, who has eyes only for Anne, doesn't even notice her, but Anne is awed by her. The beautiful woman is quickly driven from Anne's mind, though, as they come around the bend and see their house. Quote, the first glimpse of her new home was a delight to eye and spirit. It looked so like a big creamy seashell stranded on the harbor shore. Dr. David Blythe and his wife, referred to as Mrs. Dr. Dave, are there to meet the newly married couple and welcome them to supper. The house came fully furnished. A Miss Elizabeth Russell lived here until she died, and her possessions remind Anne of how Green Gables is furnished. She feels right at home. We get the sense that the house is old-fashioned, but well-maintained, just like Marilla keeps Green Gables. Captain James Boyd, the lighthouse keeper, known to all as Captain Jim, has come bringing fresh trout for dinner. Anne knows the instant she meets him that Captain Jim is a kindred spirit. Captain Jim is the keeper of the Four Winds Lighthouse, and he's an old sailor. He speaks with a rough charm that captivates Anne, and he has a knack for telling compelling stories. He's the kind of man who feeds a stray dog all of the steak he had bought himself for his dinner, and he knows all about the folks of Four Winds and Glen St. Mary. Captain Jim tells them the romantic story about this house. He explains that the schoolmaster, John Selwyn, came over from the old country when Jim was a boy of 16, and quickly he and Jim became fast friends as he was boarded at Jim's house. The schoolmaster taught Jim about poetry, and the two would walk all over the shore talking and reciting verse together. John had a sweetheart back home, and he finally got word that she would be coming out to Four Winds to marry him. Her name was Persis Lee, and she had not come originally with John because her uncle, who had raised her, was sick, and she wouldn't leave him in his last years. But once he died, she was finally coming to Four Winds. The passage across the Atlantic was very perilous and long back then, there being no steamships yet. She was to leave on the 20th of June. John said he knew, even before he got the letter from Persis, that she would be coming because he had a dream a gift or a curse that ran in his family, and he could sometimes fall into a trance and see something that was going to happen. Now, Jim didn't believe him much at the time, but no matter. John Selwyn set to work building the little house where his bride would be able to see the harbor and hear the sea from it, and he planted the garden, including the rose bushes that are still there. Everyone in town sent something to help with the house, furnishings and quilts and the like, to make the place ready for the schoolmaster's bride. By the 1st of July, the house was ready, and the ship, the Royal William, was due to arrive in the middle of July. The ship was a week overdue, and then two, and then three, and then four weeks. Everyone feared that the ship was lost at sea. John Selwyn haunted the shore and walked up and down it every night. Eight weeks after the ship was due to arrive, there was a terrible storm that lasted three days. And afterward, Captain Jim found John staring out to sea, a strange look in his eyes. When he finally came back to himself and saw Jim, he smiled and said that he had seen the Royal William coming around East Point in his trance, and he knew the ship would be there by dawn. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. At daybreak, the Royal William arrived, the whole village waiting with the schoolmaster and cheering as it sailed up the channel. Persis Lee was on board. They had had a terrible passage, storm after storm, even running out of provisions. She stepped onto the dock and everyone cheered and cried as she embraced John Selwyn. Persis Lee was sweet and winsome, and she and her schoolmaster were married that very evening. They lived in the little house for 15 years, and Captain Jim said they had a talent for happiness, and he loved to visit with them often. They moved to Charlottetown eventually and had several children. After that, Mr. and Mrs. Ned Russell moved in, and they also were happy people. Eventually, Miss Elizabeth Russell, his sister, came to live with them too, and Captain Jim says that the walls of this house must be sort of soaked with laughing and good times. Anne is delighted to inherit such a happy home. Eventually, Dr. and Mrs. Dave and Captain Jim leave the newlyweds, with Anne telling Captain Jim he must come to see them often. And the two of them, 
are finally left alone in their perfect little house of dreams. Anne and Gilbert spend the month of September putting their little home in order, wandering the seashore, sailing on the harbor, and exploring their new village and surroundings. Their relationship has a lovely, relaxed quality to it. Gilbert is settling into his role as a doctor, and he shares with Anne that he saved a life as he tried a new intervention that hadn't yet become practice outside of hospitals. And as a result, Mrs. Allenby survived, and Gilbert is certain that he is living in the fulfillment of his long-held dreams, both his career and in his life with Anne. And then we get to meet Miss Cornelia. She's one of their neighbors, not the closest one, but she lives near enough to the little house of dreams in a vivid greenhouse that is neat as a pin. They have heard of Miss Cornelia from Dr. Dave and Captain Jim as a rather blunt, perhaps middle-aged woman who considers all men to be not at all worthwhile and who is also behind helping every needy family in the village. Miss Cornelia brings her sewing with her, and she and Anne quickly form a friendship. Miss Cornelia calls kindred spirits the race that knows Joseph. And though she and Anne are quite different in temperament, they easily become friends. Miss Cornelia is our Glen St. Mary insider, and she's ready to fill Anne in on any gossip from the town. She tells Anne that she's sewing a beautiful baby dress for Mrs. Fred Proctor's eighth baby, saying, I suppose I'm a fool to be putting hand embroidery on this dress for an eighth baby, but Lord, Mrs. Blythe theory, it isn't to blame for being the eighth, and I kind of wished it to have one real pretty dress, just as if it was wanted. Miss Cornelia's catchphrase is, isn't that just like a man? Anytime <laughs> she's talking about uh, well, pretty much anything a man did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she also has a fierce distrust of Methodists, considering them to be worse than heathens, practically. We will spend a future episode on Miss Cornelia, but suffice to say that she's a force to be reckoned with. Anne and Gilbert are forming a little community for themselves. Captain Jim comes over to see them, and they venture over to his lighthouse as well, meeting the peculiar Marshall Elliot, who has an enormously long beard and shaggy hair because he vowed he wouldn't cut it until the liberals were back in power, which was 15 years ago. <laughs> I love Marshall Elliot. <laughs> he goes all in on his principles. Finally, in October, Anne manages to meet her nearest neighbor, Leslie Moore. She had wondered about her because Mrs. Moore had never come to introduce herself and welcome Anne and Gilbert to the neighborhood, which really would have been the bare minimum of polite behavior. From the circumspect way that Captain Jim referenced Mrs. Moore, Anne thought that maybe she was a bit like Mrs. Lynde, you know, sort of the force in the family while her husband Dick Moore was like a meek afterthought. And Anne thought perhaps that she was just unfriendly. When they meet, Anne is alone down on the seashore one evening while Gilbert is paying a house call. And in Anne fashion, she's enchanted by the beauty of the sea. So she proceeds to dance and sing with abandon. And as has happened to all of us who have danced like no one is watching, <laughs> Anne quickly finds that someone is indeed watching. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> and that someone is the extraordinarily beautiful woman that Anne spotted on her first drive to Four Winds. She's looking directly at Anne with an inscrutable expression on her face. Anne thinks that it's, quote, part wonder, part sympathy, part envy. She's dressed plainly, but between her gorgeous hair coiled around her head and a vivid girdle of red silk around her waist, she's still extraordinary. Quote, a flying gleam of sunset broke through a low-lying western cloud and fell upon her hair. For a moment she seemed the spirit of the sea personified. All its mystery, all its passion, all its elusive charm. Okay, Reagan, question. 
What do we think of Anne's preternatural ability to read expressions here? This is the second time that Anne has seen this woman, and in both instances, she's detected hostility underlying the woman's beautiful face. And I'm not saying that Anne is wrong, right? In fact, we will learn later that she isn't, she's reading it correctly. But it's so interesting to me that Anne is picking up on that instantly. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about Anne's genius for friendship, and I wonder if Anne isn't exceptionally good at reading people's body language and facial expressions, mm. probably a skill that helped her survive in such a neglectful and abusive scenarios as she had in her young childhood. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. She's rarely been wrong about people, perhaps only the dreadful Hazel Marr from Windy Poplars, and she hasn't even been written yet. <laughs> exactly right. So after Anne has been, you know, caught dancing, she is naturally embarrassed. And this woman isn't exactly friendly, but she does introduce herself as Leslie Moore, Mrs. Dick Moore. Anne is startled because this isn't who she expected to be her nearest neighbor. They bond briefly over the beauty of four winds, and Anne says she hopes they can be friends, right? Of course, Anne is just all earnestness right off the bat. Like, yes, you're my neighbor. Let's be besties. And then when Anne mentions that she knows Miss Cornelia, Leslie opens up a tiny bit. Anne confesses that she thinks Leslie is stunning, and Leslie shares that she hates her beauty and wishes she were plain. And then she abruptly changes the topic back to Miss Cornelia. Leslie says Miss Cornelia is her dearest friend in the world, and Anne is confused because she had never heard Miss Cornelia mention Leslie at all. So it's just a weird encounter, right? Anne kind of chatters on a bit, and she's just offering her friendship easily to Leslie, who is still standoffish and cold. They also discover that they are close in age, although while Anne is a newlywed at, we think she's about 25 years old, you know, Leslie is 28, and she has been married for 12 years already, which takes Anne by surprise. The whole conversation is stilted and odd. Just as Anne leaves, Leslie weirdly reluctantly says that Anne must come and see her. Anne is confused, right? This whole conversation has not really led up to an invitation. And she says she'll come, but only if Leslie really wants her to. And then Leslie responds eagerly, as if it bursts out of her, that she does want Anne to come. Anne resolves to ask Miss Cornelia about her. And then the next time that Miss Cornelia is over, Anne shares that she has met Leslie and Miss Cornelia says she hopes they will be friends. Anne says she thinks she would like Leslie if she'll just let Anne in, but so far she's being kept away at an arm's length. When Anne shares more about what her interaction was like, Miss Cornelia says that Leslie must have liked Anne a lot. Even though she seemed cold and withdrawn at the time, that's pretty social for Leslie. Miss Cornelia tells Anne Leslie's story saying that all of Four Winds knows exactly what happened, so she's not sharing any secrets. And trigger warning here for listeners, Leslie's life has several traumatic deaths in it, so if you're feeling sensitive, just go ahead and skip ahead a few minutes. Miss Cornelia explains to Anne that Leslie's father was charming but shiftless, and her mother was beautiful but lazy and spoiled, so they were very poor as a family, living on potatoes and point. I had to look up what that meant, potatoes in point, because it's a phrase used multiple times in this book, and I didn't know what it meant. It means being so poor that all you get to eat is potatoes, and you point to the empty space on your plate where the meat or other main item would go. Oh, that is depressing. I never heard that either. Anyway, Leslie also had a younger brother, and though they were poor, Leslie was very happy. She was a bright and friendly child, very close with her father. She didn't see his faults at all, and she just adored her little brother, Kenneth, who was four years younger than her. Well, when Leslie was 12, her brother was killed. He fell off a big load of hay right under the wagon wheel, which crushed him to death. 
Leslie was right there. She saw it all happen. Leslie shut up tight and never talked about it. Her father fell into a deep depression after Kenneth died. And when Leslie was 14, he committed suicide by hanging himself. And of course, it was Leslie, who had only just begun to laugh again, who found his body. It was Leslie who took care of her mother after that. The farm was mortgaged to the hilt, but Leslie's grandmother had left her a little money, enough for her to take a year at Queens. Leslie did what Anne and Gilbert did and took two years' worth of work in one year. They all must have just missed each other at Queens by a year or two. She was planning to teach at the Glen School until she earned enough money to go to Redmond, just like Anne and Gilbert. But when she came home, her beauty attracted a different future for her. Dick Moore was, quote, a big, handsome fellow with a little ugly soul. He drank a lot, and there were nasty stories floating around about him and a girl down in the fishing village. But he saw Leslie, and he wanted her, because she was the most beautiful girl in the village, and because she didn't want him. I get a real Gaston from Beauty and the Beast vibes from this awful guy. Yeah, he is a bully for sure. So as it turns out, Dick Moore's dad happened to hold the mortgage to Leslie's family farm, and the interest had been due for years. So Dick, this absolute prince of a guy, went to Leslie's mother and told her that if Leslie didn't marry him, he'd tell his father to foreclose on the farm. Leslie's mother begged Leslie not to let her be turned out of her home. She said her heart would break if she had to leave it. And Leslie couldn't bear to make her mother sad, so she agreed. Leslie and Dick settled down on the farm with her mother, but her mother died of pneumonia only a year later. And we don't get any details on what kind of a husband Dick was, but he appears to have been an abusive one if you read between the lines. Once she was married to Dick, Leslie closed herself off, and all people could see was the cold, proud face that she showed to the world. At that point, Dick decided he had had enough of farm life, took off to visit family, and then sent Leslie a letter from Nova Scotia saying that he and his cousin George were going to voyage to Havana on a ship called the Four Sisters, and they had be gone for about two weeks. The summer went by, and the ship never came back from Havana. No word from Dick or cousin George. George's family investigated and found that the ship had gotten to Havana, dropped the cargo, and took another job, but there was nothing about what happened to Dick and George. Time kept passing, and people started assuming that Dick Moore was dead. Leslie never thought he was dead, though. A year later, Captain Jim was in Havana. He was still sailing back then. And he started asking around, trying to figure out what had happened. He followed various leads, and then finally at a boarding house that sailors frequented, he found a man that he knew at first sight to be Dick Moore, even with a beard and even having gained a lot of weight, because he had the peculiar Moore eyes with one blue and the other hazel. But here's the thing. Dick's mind was gone. The boarding house folks said that he was found beaten to a pulp, and they didn't even know if he'd survive. He did, but when he woke up, his mind was like a young child with no memory or intellect or reason. He didn't have any identification on him, only a letter from Leslie addressed to him. So they knew his name was Dick, but the envelope was lost, so there was no last name and no address for them to communicate back with her. Captain Jim brought him home, hoping that once he was in familiar surroundings, that would trigger his memory. But that didn't happen, and Leslie has been taking care of him ever since. Dick's father died soon after Dick returned home, and it was found out that he had very little money left. So Leslie has been making do the best she can. She's rented out the farm, and that's her only income, aside from taking the occasional summer boarder. Miss Cornelia reports it's been a living death for Leslie. She's trapped here, taking care of him, because he can't even be left alone. He's like a toddler. And the childlike mannerisms in a grown man's body is off-putting to many people, so they avoid Leslie as well. She has no opportunities for her to change her circumstances, and she hates being pitied. Mm, Leslie. Miss Cornelia asks Anne to be friends with Leslie. Leslie has been so alone and friendless. Her spirit has been shriveling up. 
She tells Anne, even if Leslie pushes her away or throws up walls, Anne must keep being her friend. Anne's heart is wrung by this story, and she vows to connect with Leslie. Our romance-loving Anne sees the tragedy in Leslie's story, seeing her as a trapped princess in a tower. Captain Jim encourages Leslie to come visit Anne and Gilbert, and Anne lets her know that she's aware of Leslie's situation. She treats the subject of Dick Moore very matter-of-factly, and that's a barrier hurdled, so it's not long before Leslie and Anne form a friendship. Anne and Gilbert also settle into a comfortable rhythm. They visit often with Captain Jim, and Leslie comes along when she can as well. Captain Jim watches Dick many evenings, so Leslie can go visit Anne and Gilbert at the House of Dreams. Leslie starts coming out of her shell in the company of intelligent, kind, young people, people her age, like Anne and Gilbert. And we start getting hints that Anne is pregnant, with oblique references to a special hope for spring. The Green Gables folks come to Four Winds for Christmas. Anne and Gilbert wanted to spend their first Christmas together in their new home. Marilla has never had Christmas dinner anywhere other than Green Gables. But for Anne, she braves it. Mrs. Lynn brings an enormous plum pudding with her because she's not sure if Anne can do it justice. But she ultimately approves of Anne's housekeeping skills after checking out Anne's scrap pail. Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia join them for Christmas dinner. Leslie and Dick do not, going to Uncle Isaac's instead. And Miss Cornelia says that Leslie would be embarrassed about Dick in front of the Green Gables visitors. Anne and Gilbert prove themselves as host and hostess in their own right, and Christmas is delightful. It's a beautiful day. The Green Gables folks return home after a few days, and Anne, Gilbert, and Leslie all go to Captain Jim's lighthouse for New Year's, with Marshall Elliott of the Enormous Beard and Liberal Politics also spending the evening with them. Despite Marshall's odd looks, they do find him to be good company as well. They all tell stories, sing songs, and Captain Jim brings down his fiddle. Marshall, Elliot, and Leslie even dance. The music and opportunity to dance brings a beautiful freedom to Leslie's spirit in the moment. And Anne gets a glimpse of the Leslie who's lurking under all her trauma, grief, and loneliness. Despite their growing closeness, Anne talks to Captain Jim one winter evening of the barrier that she still feels between her and Leslie. And Captain Jim says that Anne has been too happy all her life, and Leslie has experienced too much sorrow and tragedy. And while Anne's early childhood was neglectful and lonely, she had many later years of happiness and love and opportunity. Leslie's life has been almost the inverse, a happy early childhood and nothing but suffering and pain ever since. I don't think it's a coincidence that Anne and Leslie were at the same age when their lives changed. Anne was 11 when she came to Green Gables. Leslie was 12 when her brother died. So old enough to remember their past and their childhood, young enough that their personalities and outlooks were still being shaped. Yeah, I think that's a great observation, Regan. Leslie holds back because she senses Anne doesn't understand what that kind of trauma feels like, and she's protecting her raw hurt. Anne knows that, right? She knows that intuitively, but she also senses that sometimes Leslie just resents her, dislikes her. And she doesn't have any specific proof of this, just a look in Leslie's eyes. But Captain Jim reassures Anne that Leslie cares deeply about her, and that Leslie has bloomed since Anne has come to Four Winds. And he also hints at the person Dick Moore used to be, saying he guesses Leslie would take this trapped existence over what her life with him was before he lost his memory. But we get no specific details, just this strong hint that Dick Moore was not much of a husband to Leslie. Anne still picks up on Leslie's resentment toward her, and it seems especially sharp the day that Anne confides in Leslie her hope for what spring will bring to the House of Dreams. Leslie chokes out, so you are to have that too, and leaves Anne without another word. Anne is deeply hurt by this, but a few days later, Leslie is back and acting like it never happened. 
Anne doesn't mention it again to Leslie, but a month or so later, she finds a box left at the House of Dreams for her with a gloriously worked baby dress in it and a note saying, with Leslie's love. But when Anne goes to thank Leslie, she is curt and cold again. All winter, everyone around Anne is prepping for the baby to come. Not only is Anne making baby things, Miss Cornelia is sewing a complete wardrobe for the baby. Phil and Diana and Mrs. Lind all send beautiful baby dresses as well. You really sense that Anne's loved ones are pouring their love for her into these baby gifts. Yes, this is like the Anne of Green Gables baby shower. The winter passes happily with Anne working away to prepare for this much-dreamed-for baby, an evening spent listening to all of Captain Jim's stories. Captain Jim tells incredible tales, and he has written them down in his life book, hoping to pass them on to his nephews. He shows it to Anne one evening, and Anne sees the life book for the treasure it is. The writing itself is plain, the colorful stories only an outline on paper, without good grammar or spelling even but she can see in it a marvelous book that captures Captain Jim's spirit through his stories and knows that with a good writer, it could become something great. Gilbert asks her if she thinks she could do it, but Anne doesn't think it's in her wheelhouse, which is sweet fairy-like sketches and stories for children. Captain Jim's life book would need a writer who could capture the humor and the drama of his life at sea, the scope of his adventures, and the depth of his soul. She wonders if maybe Paul Irving could do it and invites Paul to come out in the summer to meet Captain Jim. But Paul will be studying abroad for the next two years. He promises to come after that, but Anne fears that Captain Jim is growing too old too quickly. In the late spring, we add Susan Baker to the Blythe household, quote, a grim-faced, kind-hearted, elderly spinster of the Glen, who had been added presumably as Anne's pregnancy gets to the ungainly stage to help with housekeeping and cooking. It's also a sign of Gilbert's growing prosperity that he can afford domestic staff to help Anne. Marilla arrives to stay for the month of June. Susan is weirdly jealous of Marilla because she's already become kind of possessive of waiting on Anne. But Marilla stays out of the kitchen, so they get along fine. I find this weird. But to be honest, Susan Baker has never been one of my favorite characters. Yeah, she's an interesting one. But then comes one of the saddest chapters in the Anne books. So trigger warning again here, folks. If dangerous deliveries and child loss are not safe topics for you right now, skip ahead a few minutes. On an early June evening, Anne goes into labor. Dr. Dave and his nurse are tending to her and appears to be a very difficult delivery. Marilla is pacing in the garden praying. Susan is sitting in the kitchen with cotton in her ears and her apron over her head. Leslie is keeping a vigil from her window, watching the lights on in the house of dreams. Marilla and Susan are praying for Anne's safety. It is a wrenching scene and it is clear that Anne's life is in danger. In the morning, after what feels like an endless night, Anne is safe and through the delivery, and a little baby girl is lying beside her, whom Maud describes as a wee white lady. Gilbert is haggard and desolate, though. When Marilla comes in to see Anne, Anne tells her that the baby is named Joyce, so they can call her Joy for short. Anne says, oh, Marilla, I thought I was happy before. Now I know that I just dreamed a pleasant dream of happiness. This is the reality. But gradually, Anne realizes that no one else seems as happy as she. The nurse looks serious. Marilla looks sorrowful. Gilbert isn't glad and isn't talking about the baby. And as that sinks in, Anne begs Gilbert to tell her that the baby is okay. We don't hear what Gilbert says, just that he turns around and he looks into Anne's eyes. And Anne moans heartbrokenly. Marilla tells Susan that Gilbert said there is no hope and that he knew right away the baby couldn't live. And at sunset, baby Joyce passes away. It is absolutely heart-wrenching. Miss Cornelia dresses the baby in the little outfit that Leslie had made and leaves Anne and Gilbert to grieve her. 
They bury her the next day at the church across the harbor, and Miss Cornelia and Marilla pack away all the little outfits and the bassinet. Marilla is grateful that Anne's life was spared, and Leslie suddenly bursts out with, I envy Anne, and I'd envy her even if she had died. She was a mother for one beautiful day. I'd gladly give my life for that. It's kind of a strange take, to be sure. And there's no response that Miss Cornelia and Marilla can make to that. No, I think they're properly shocked by it. (laughs) But it makes sense. It makes sense for Leslie. And that's something we'll talk about throughout the season. Anne's recovery is long. And as a side effect of that, Susan Baker becomes a permanent addition to the House of Dreams to take care of the heavier workload around the house for Anne. Of course, everything hurts Anne in the immediate aftermath. The sunshine seems wrong, but the rain makes her think only of it beating mercilessly on the little grave. No one's kind words of sympathy ring true to her. She can only feel despair and doesn't know how she will ever feel happy again. The injustice of her much-anticipated and beloved baby being cruelly snatched from her, while other babies who are unwanted and unloved get to grow up instead, rocks her faith in God. Gradually, Anne does find that she can go on living, for Gilbert's sake, and the sake of those who love her. She starts finding small bits of humor and beauty again, but she'll never go back to feeling carefree again. She'll always carry this sorrow with her. This is one of those character-defining moments. There will never be a version of Anne who didn't lose that baby. When Anne is finally able to leave the house, her first outing is down to the lighthouse. Captain Jim comforts Anne and shares with her the story of his lost Margaret. Fifty years ago, Captain Jim's sweetheart fell asleep one day in her father's dory and drifted, or so it was gathered, out of the channel beyond the bar. And a sudden thunderstorm sprang up and she was never seen again. He shares that he walked the shore for months, looking even to find her body, but that never happened. Since then, Captain Jim sees her in the white birch of the woods or hears her in the sound of the sea. He keeps looking for her and knows that she will be waiting for him when he crosses the bar. And he's glad he told the story to Anne to keep her memory alive. He never could love anyone else after that. This book is so emotional. I mean, like really in the best way, but I mean, there is a lot of tragedy and loss in this book. You know, everyone kind of has suffered in this particular way and they come together and share their grief with each other. And it's really powerful and poignant. One day, as Anne is recovering, she and Leslie are sitting and sewing in her garden together. Abruptly, because that seems to be how Leslie operates, Leslie shares how worried she had been about Anne and fearful that she would die and that they'd never again get to talk and spend time together. It made her realize how much Anne's friendship has meant to her. And Leslie says that in that moment of fear, she vowed to confess to Anne that she, Leslie, had been a terrible friend. So now she confesses to Anne that there were times in this last year which she hated Anne. Anne has already picked up on this, of course, and Leslie is shocked that she would continue to be friends with her. As Anne says, it was only now and then you hated me, Leslie. Between times you loved me, I think. Leslie goes on to say that terrible envy often possessed her. Anne had everything she wanted, love, happiness, a sweet home, beautiful dreams for children, things Leslie thinks she will never get to have herself. The moment that she feared Anne dying, Leslie felt it was punishment for that envy and hate. Leslie says that she was envious of Anne before she even met her, having heard about the lovely new couple moving in and seeing from her house Anne and Gilbert together in their garden. 
The night that Anne met Leslie on the shore, Leslie was in deep despair, possibly even contemplating suicide. She both hated Anne when she met her. Anne's carefree and lighthearted spirit mocked Leslie's empty life, and she desperately wanted to be her friend. And since then, those two parts of her are constantly warring. That's what came out when Anne told her about her pregnancy. That's what was behind her cold reaction. Anne reassures Leslie that she loves her and encourages her to tell her everything, to let sunlight into the darkness of her bitterness. And Leslie says that she does feel like she can love Anne wholeheartedly and without envy now, now that she's talked about it. And also, Leslie is careful to couch this idea very thoughtfully, but the fact that Anne has experienced such a terrible loss sweeps away one of the barriers between them, because Anne no longer has a perfect happiness that can only be envied. Leslie says she's devastated that Joyce died and would have sacrificed anything to save her for Anne. But since it did happen, there's a new closeness between them as two people who have both experienced deep loss. Leslie goes on to share her version of her life story with Anne, and for once is open and vulnerable about all the terrible things that happened to her. Anne understands all of it and tells Leslie that their friendship is truly deep, deeper than the lighter friendships of her youth because they're both adults who've experienced loss and can understand the pain of life with each other, and that they'll be forever friends. I know I'm really looking forward to discussing this much more in our Leslie episode about how the friendships we make as adults are often forged in these really painful fires of the realities of life. Yeah, there's so much to explore here. Yeah. Meanwhile, We learn that Miss Cornelia is setting up a potential border for Leslie. It seems like this is something both she and Leslie do occasionally, host people on vacation for some extra money. And since Four Winds is so close to the beach, it makes sense. And there's very little that someone like Leslie can do to earn money when she also has to be available to take care of Dick. Leslie agrees to host a writer named Owen Ford for the summer. When Owen Ford arrives, even Miss Cornelia can't find anything negative to say about him. And Susan immediately comments that he's a well-looking man. So we can deduce that he's appealing, young, good-looking, pleasant, smart. Sure enough, he quickly becomes part of their little four-wind social community, making friends with the Blythes, charming Miss Cornelia, and admiring Captain Jim. In fact, when Owen meets Captain Jim, we learn that Owen is the grandson of the schoolmaster and his bride. Owen listens to one of Captain Jim's yarns and is enthralled, instantly inspired by the old sea captain. When Anne tells Owen about Captain Jim's life book, Owen knows that he can make it great. But for all his connections with the Four Winds people, Owen is captivated by Leslie, by her beauty and her brilliance. One doesn't expect a goddess for a landlady, he tells Anne, who tells him to chill and be normal. (laughs) And to remember that she's a human like everyone else, and a human who is in a difficult circumstance with her husband's condition. With Captain Jim's blessing, Owen Ford takes up the task of writing his life book. Jim is thrilled that the grandson of his dear old friend is writing the book, and it does have a beautiful symmetry to it. Owen starts writing in a little room at the lighthouse where he can easily interview Captain Jim, And so the summer passes happily, with Owen writing in the morning and spending time with Leslie and the Blythes in the afternoon. They really seem to take advantage of all the lovely things there are to do in this coastal village. Boating in the harbor, clam bakes on the shore, strawberry picking on the sand dunes, and rambling along the beach or talking and laughing in the living room at the House of Dreams. Regan, I hope that you are taking notes on all of this for our PEI trip. Yep, yep, writing it down now. (laughs) You know, but I also have to think that this summer must have been incredibly healing for Anne and Gilbert after their loss, and it truly was a wonderful period of joy for Leslie as well. It seems like Owen Ford just fits right in and makes their little group complete. 
Owen finishes the book and says he is sure he will find a publisher, sure that the book will be great. But the way he says it isn't arrogant. Rather, it's a testament to Captain Jim's amazing life. It's clear that Owen just thinks of himself as a conduit for Captain Jim's own storytelling ability. The summer has drawn to a close and Owen is preparing to leave. Before he goes, he confesses to Anne that he has fallen in love with Leslie. Anne intuitively understands that Leslie has also fallen in love with Owen, but she does not tell Owen this. Rather, she sticks to the facts. Leslie is married and not free to be with Owen. Owen struggles with this. He knows it's true, but he rails at the unfairness that a woman, quote, so richly fitted for life, as he characterizes Leslie, should be trapped in such an unhappy situation. He says he can never return to Four Winds. Anne handles Owen's confession very diplomatically without encouraging him. She tells him they will all miss him when he is gone. The night that Owen leaves Four Winds, Anne goes for a walk in the sandbar. It's a thrilling description of an eerie autumn night at the shore. Anne runs into Leslie, who has rowed over to the sandbar so she could just walk and walk and walk. She's clearly distressed and agitated. Anne calmly asks if Leslie is in love with Owen Ford. And Leslie admits that yes, she is. She's ashamed of her love because she is not free to love anyone. Anne does not tell her what Owen told her. She just lets Leslie talk it out, saying to Leslie that it won't always feel so unbearable. Words that she knows from personal experience are hardly comforting. Anne agrees to keep Leslie's secret. Gilbert later observes to Anne that it would have been better if Leslie had met a man like Owen before she married Dick Moore. And Anne, apparently at her wit's end with the romantic confessions, sharply tells him not to be a matchmaker, but she wishes everyone could be as happy together as Anne and Gilbert are. And I think here Anne's morals are in conflict. It's wrong for a married woman to love someone other than her husband, but also Leslie is her friend. She deeply wants Leslie to be happy and believes she deserves to be happy, but she takes it out on Gilbert in this moment. I think she's also maybe a little frustrated at Gilbert, like, okay, Captain Obvious. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Like, we just spent all summer with these people watching them make puppy dog eyes at each other, you think? <laughs> He's like, get up to speed up to speed here he's like you know what they would be so good together <laughs> autumn at four winds comes and goes leslie's old dog passes away and leslie tells Anne that the dog was a friend and a comfort to her when dick was gone and that he never acknowledged dick as his owner when dick returned Anne goes to Avonlea for a joyful Christmas at Green Gables and returns to find Four Winds covered in snow after several back-to-back -back winter storms. They learn that Owen found a publisher for Captain Jim's lifebook and that the book should be published by the following fall. That spring, Gilbert comes to Anne with a serious ethical quandary. He's made up his mind, but he does still seek her counsel. He had an occasion to examine the scarring on Dick Moore's head, and he began wondering if an operation would help restore his memory and faculties. Gilbert has hypothesized that trephining, or drilling holes into Dick's skull, may relieve pressure in his brain and help him heal. He has resolved to tell Leslie that this may be an option to bring Dick back. Anne immediately understands that if this operation does work as hoped, Dick could be restored to the terrible husband he was to Leslie before he went to sea. And although Leslie's life as a caregiver to Dick is very difficult, Anne is sure that if Dick's mental ability was restored, that he would make Leslie's life even more miserable. Again, it's not stated outright, but Anne's strong implication is that Dick was abusive to Leslie and that she would be better off caring for a mentally disabled husband than in an abusive relationship. Anne can't allow that to happen to her 
her friend, and she can't understand why Gilbert is bent on telling Leslie that this operation is even an option. Anne and Gilbert argue, and Anne tells Gilbert to seek counsel from Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia, which he agrees to do, but he also tells Anne that he has already made up his mind and that he must abide by his own conscience. And Gilbert is right, isn't he? We certainly understand Anne being protective of her friend, but if there are relevant medical treatment options, even if they come with some terrible side effects, the patient and their caregivers have a right to know. Captain Jim also sees it that way. Miss Cornelia agrees with Anne. Miss Cornelia is especially furious because she liked Gilbert so much for a man and now sees that he's just like a man, like all the other terrible men out there. Captain Jim sees the pain this decision will bring to Leslie and regrets that it could cause her even more trouble, but states that, quote, it ain't our feelings we have to steer by through life. No, no, we'd make a shipwreck mighty often if we did that. There's only the one safe compass, and we've got to set our course by that, what it's right to do. Gilbert tells Leslie about the operation and his theory about how it could help Dick. She does not respond in the moment, telling Gilbert she will think it over and let him know. Gilbert comes home to Anne, tired and worn from the weight of this decision and the ordeal of telling Leslie and causing her this distress and anguish. Anne sees that he is still the essentially good man she knows. She asks his forgiveness for their argument. For the next few days, Anne gives Leslie space to decide. Then, Leslie comes over to the House of Dreams to tell Gilbert her decision to take Dick to Montreal for the operation. As she goes to leave, Anne offers to walk her home, and Leslie curtly tells her not to because the ground is too damp. Once again, Leslie has thrown up her wall of ice, and Anne is left on the other side. Miss Cornelia later comes to see Anne, having learned of Leslie's decision. She's furious about the whole thing, and certain this will only result in misery for Leslie. Miss Cornelia blames Gilbert and... Anne loyally takes her husband's side, even though she agrees with Miss Cornelia deep down. Miss Cornelia says she hopes the operation doesn't work, and she vows to devote her energy to comforting and sustaining Leslie. Once Leslie makes up her mind to take Dick to get the operation, she wastes little time. She must resolve the question of how to pay for the operation, and she borrows money from Captain Jim, who later tells Anne that he plans to forgive the debt in his will. These people are also lovely. <laughs> Leslie puts her house in order and goes to Montreal in May, calm in the face of this terrible, hard thing. Leslie does not solicit help or support from Anne. She just shoulders this burden stoically, like every other she's shouldered before. Not just refuses support, right? She throws up every barrier she can between her and Anne, rarely coming over to see her, and when she does, she's icily polite, but there's none of that warm camaraderie they built over the previous summer. Gilbert escorts Leslie and Dick to Montreal, presumably to pave the way from a medical perspective, but he comes home before the operation takes place. Ten days after Gilbert returns home, they receive a letter from Leslie stating the operation is, quote, successful, but no other details. Some time passes before Anne gets another letter from Leslie, but when that letter comes, the news is shocking. It turns out that the man, who they all believe to be Dick Moore, was not Dick at all, but rather his cousin George. Dick has been dead these past 13 years. Just like a man, pronounced Miss Cornelia helplessly and hilariously. I'm not sure how this one is specific to men, but... Just like a man... <laughs> <laughs> to, to fall and lose your memory and your senses and get mistaken for your cousin. Uh, just, just like a man. 
What the folks at Four Winds gradually learn is that Dick died of yellow fever in Cuba and his cousin George, who bore a striking resemblance to Dick, including having mismatched eyes, was the one that Captain Jim found. None of the Four Winds folks had ever really met George, who lived in Nova Scotia, only just now recalling that Dick and George were reportedly double cousins. That is, their mothers were a pair of sisters married to a pair of brothers. When George healed from the operation, he explained that just before the accident where he lost his memory, he had Dick's letter from Leslie and was planning to return home to tell Leslie that Dick had died. Leslie helped George recover for a few weeks from the operation, and then George's sister came from Montreal to take him home. When Leslie returns to Four Winds, she tells Anne that it feels like a dream, that she has barely realized what happened, barely understands that she is free now. She explains to Anne that what she experienced after Gilbert told her that Dick might be cured and how tormented she was by the decision, knowing that if the operation did succeed, she would once again be trapped in this terrible marriage. Leslie said that she had all but resolved not to go through with the operation, but then she realized that if she didn't do it, she would be denying the man she thought of as Dick the chance to grow and develop. Her innate sense of goodness, and I'd argue her empathy at feeling trapped in an unhappy situation, eventually won out, and she knew that she had to agree to the operation. Anne comforts Leslie and tells her that she's free. She's no longer in a cage. There is no cage. And Leslie agrees, but says that even freedom takes time to get used to. And then Leslie does something remarkable. She asks Anne for help. Quote, Anne, pat my head, just as if I were a little girl. Mother me a bit. It's a first step toward a new life for her. And when Miss Cornelia wonders if this freedom could mean that Leslie and Owen could be together, she doesn't know of either confession the way that Anne does, but it doesn't take much to see that Leslie and Owen were taken by each other. Anne doesn't want to gossip about it, but she does drop the information about Dick, now George, to Owen in her next letter. Just as Leslie is realizing that she can actually dream of a future for herself, a dream comes true for Anne and Gilbert. Their son is born in the summer. An easy delivery so fast that Gilbert doesn't even wake Marilla up. Yay! A healthy baby with hair as red as Anne's, Gilbert's hazel eyes, and strong lungs. They name him James Matthew, as Anne says, after two of the best men she has ever known. And they call him Jem, for short. Anne is over the moon in love with her baby, and all the Four Winds folks and the Green Gables visitors are likewise enamored with him. Leslie in particular dotes on little Jem, and she and Anne spend many happy hours crooning over him and declaring him the best baby that ever there was. Yes. <laughs> Confidentially, Miss Cornelia tells Anne that Owen Ford has written and asked if he could come and board at our house this summer. Anne knows that he's coming to see Leslie. Miss Cornelia guesses that that's the case, but Anne feels guilty about the matchmaking because she knows if Leslie knew, she would avoid Owen, still feeling embarrassed and guilty about having fallen in love with him when she did not know that she was free to do so. Ugh. I think Anne is way too hard on herself here. She has only done any matchmaking in the lightest possible sense. And remember how glad Anne herself was when Philippa wrote to Gilbert to tell him that Anne was not engaged to Roy. I know! And it's funny that the Anne of House of Dreams is so guilty about interfering even a tiny little bit, but then Maude went back and wrote Windy Poplars, in which Anne is an extremely very direct and inveterate matchmaker and matchbreaker. I know! Come on, consistency. In the meantime, politics comes to four winds with the general election 
Gilbert, a conservative like Anne, is in demand for speechmaking at various local rallies. But the liberals win, and a surprise effect of that is that Marshall Elliott finally shaves. Apparently, he wakes the barber in the dead of election night to do it. It is such a funny scene. Truly, though, I love Marshall Elliott, and if there are any misses in this book, it's that we don't see more of him. Once he's shaved, he looks so different that Anne doesn't even recognize him the next time she sees him. And Captain Jim is talking more openly about nearing the end of his life. He's looking much more tired lately, too. He hopes to see his life book in print before that time comes. Just as Owen Ford is about to arrive at Miss Cornelia's, Susan Baker is called away to help her sister. So Leslie comes to stay and help Anne and Jem at the House of Dreams. Leslie is with Anne when Owen arrives. He goes directly to Leslie and holds out his hand to her. But Leslie is so surprised the color drains from her face and she avoids him and is cold to him. That's like her go-to move when she's feeling vulnerable. Yeah. Later, Leslie accuses Anne of knowing that Owen was arriving and hiding it from her. Anne owns it and says that she knew and she thought Leslie might be too afraid of happiness to stay. She tells Leslie to meet the happiness that is here for her. She doesn't have to stay bitter and lonely. Quote, I am not a prophetess, but I shall venture on a prediction. The bitterness of life is over for you. After this, you're going to have the joys and hopes, and I dare say the sorrows too, of a happy woman. Leslie doesn't answer, but the next day when Owen comes to ask her to go for a walk with him, she goes. And then we get a stunning surprise. Miss Cornelia announces that she is going to get married. And to whom? Marshall Elliott. Miss Cornelia says that she could have had him any time in the last 20 years, but she was never going to marry him when he looked like, quote, a perambulating haystack. (laughs) Anne and Gilbert flabbergasted. Never would have guessed this outcome, but they are, of course, happy for them both. Get it, Miss Cornelia? (laughs) I was so happy for both of them. I am serious, Reagan. I want the version of this book that tells the exact same story, but all from Miss Cornelia's point of view. This would be amazing, and I think you need to add this to your list of ideas for after you write Aunt Josephine Berry's backstory. Oh, that's right. I know. I have a lot lot to get, get going on here. Finally, in late August, when Owen's vacation is nearly over, Owen proposes to Leslie in the rose garden of the little house of dreams. Leslie tells Anne she's afraid this happiness is just a dream and that when she leaves their little house, it will burst like a bubble. Anne tells her that she must stay with her until she and Owen get married and never go back to that house where she felt so trapped. In late September, Owen Ford's book is published at last. Captain Jim's copy arrives and Anne and Leslie take it over to him that evening. The life book of Captain Jim is published with the names Owen Ford and James Boyd printed as collaborators. And in the frontispiece is a photograph of Captain Jim himself. They can see that Captain Jim can't wait to read it, but he is ever the perfect host and offers them tea and cakes and they have a lovely visit. They leave him to read it alone as soon as they can, and they know that he will pour over it all night. But in the morning, Gilbert wakes Anne. He's worried because the light in the lighthouse is still on, and Captain Jim is always prompt, turning on the light the instant the sun sets and putting it out the instant it rises. The two hurry over to the lighthouse, and there they find that Captain Jim has crossed the bar. He's lying on the sofa, his hands on the lifebook, open to the last page. His face was full of peace and contentment. Anne knows that his spirit had slipped away on the sunrise sea where lost Margaret is waiting for him. Captain Jim is buried and is missed deeply. He never gets to see the rave reviews of his book or see it on the bestseller list. But Anne knows he wouldn't have cared about that. He just wanted the book itself to know he's left a legacy behind him. 
And now by this time, Miss Cornelia and Marshall Elliott are living happily in her little greenhouse. Leslie is busy sewing a trousseau as she and Owen will be married at Christmas. Gilbert tells Anne that the old Morgan house in the Glen is up for sale. It's close to town where Gilbert can reach his patients more easily. And it's big with room for more children. With a big lawn, 12 acres of a hardwood grove behind it, there's an orchard and a walled garden. Gilbert points out that soon they will outgrow their little house, and Anne will be lonely with Captain Jim gone and Leslie about to move to Toronto with Owen. Anne knows it's the right decision, but it seems so soon. She's not ready to leave the little house yet, the house which has brought her so much joy and welcomed so many new friends that held little Joyce on her one day on earth and where Jem was born. Anne worries that whoever lives in the house of dreams next will not care for it as they have and will let it go to ruin. Leslie is sympathetic to Anne and reminds her that her new home will become beloved as well once there are memories in it. Anne is resigned, and the Blyes begin the process of packing up the little house, pausing for the bittersweet moment they shorten little Jem's dresses, indicating he's no longer a newborn. But then Leslie brings some glad news. Owen writes he wants to buy the House of Dreams and keep it for them as their summer vacation home. Anne is delighted, and that eases her sadness in leaving. And in October, the moving carts come, the little House of Dreams is stripped bare, Anne and Gilbert stop to have a last moment alone in the place where their lives together started. Anne kisses the front step and murmurs, goodbye, dear little house of dreams. Mm. I think I love this book more than ever with this most recent reread. I'm sure that's due in part to the podcast, which has given me just like a much more critical lens. And I think this book very much holds up to a critical read. But I also think I loved House of Dreams because it brought back some of my nostalgia for the first few years of my marriage. Seeing Anne and Gilbert grow into the Blythes, a unit of two, a family in and of themselves, through joyful times and disagreement, anticipation and hope and heartache, and the simple act of making a house a home, it just felt all the more poignant to me this time around. This is such a special book, and I cannot wait for our discussions this season. Yes, it's so lovely to see the payoff of Anne and Gilbert's up-and-down courtship here. We all knew they'd be great together, so it's so special to see exactly why and how they grow closer together. Mm -hmm. Well, listeners, we are going to skip our Birch Path and Inspired By segments this week because this is already such a long episode. We hope you've all enjoyed this recap of Anne's House of Dreams. Join us next time as we start in on our character studies with the singular Miss Cornelia. We just love her and we love what she represents. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share our podcast on your social media feeds. That's really the best way for new kindred spirits to find the podcast and to share their love of all things Anne. If you do review or share the podcast, send us an email at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com or DM us on our Instagram, also kindredspirits.bookclub, and we will send you a beautiful Kindred Spirits Book Club sticker, perfect to adorn your water bottle or e-reader. Follow us on Instagram, too, for peeks into upcoming episodes and other fun bookish posts. As always, thank you for listening, Kindred Spirits. Bye, Kindred Spirits. 